Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 9. It's a famous story, if you want to follow along. Verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, those are Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'd like to speak with you on the subject of conversion this morning, but I would like to start with the profile from our story. So let's start with Saul. Uh, And a note, Saul's name will be changed to Paul. I realize that I use them somewhat interchangeably, so don't get confused. Let's start with Saul. He grew up in a faithful Jewish family, and Saul does his best to live a faithful life. He believes in God with 100% of who he is. He knows his scripture. In fact, there's a pretty good chance he would have the entire Old Testament memorized. Memorized, like in his head, able to recite it. He knows all the prayers, and he's working to be the best believer in God that he can. On top of all of this, he has his career, which you might not know. He's a tent maker. So he works hard building his business and perfecting his craft, long hours working with his hands, working with leather, building tents. And he knows where he's headed. He knows where his life is headed. Maybe he's married. Maybe he has kids. We're not sure, but for sure he has friends. He has colleagues. A lot of people know Saul. And he's doing his best to be faithful to God and his family and to do his work well. And then he finds out about this group called The Way. They will later be called Christians. And he loses it. He freaks out. They're wandering around saying that there was a man named Jesus who was God. And he died and was resurrected. And Saul knows that God is in heaven. God is perfect. Saul believes God could never die. So he leaps to God's defense. The story for the morning says that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he goes to his boss, the high priest, and asks for permission to go out and find these people who believe in Jesus and arrest them. He wants to bind them and drag them from their homes to the capital, to Jerusalem, where they can be thrown in jail and may be killed. The high priest gives him permission and sends him on his way, so Saul sets out, and he's got some soldiers with him because Paul is on a mission to kill some Christians. This is no joke. He is honestly doing what he thinks is right. He is trying to be faithful to God. This is his trajectory. 
It's easy to read Saul as some sort of mustache-twirling villain. He's doing some pretty evil stuff, but you have to remember that Saul is not a cartoon character. He isn't trying to be a bad person. He's trying to be faithful. He's trying to honor his family. He's trying to defend his faith. And he is doing things horribly wrong, but he is doing it with the best of intentions. Which is exactly how we find ourselves in trouble, too. Hardly anyone sets out intending to make a poor business decision. That's not how it happens. There's pressure to get profits up, to cut costs down, to make a statement or maintain productivity. Someone is trying hard to do their best for the company, and they make a hard choice because someone had to do it. Or we trust our hearts and, in following where it leads, find ourselves in an emotionally compromised relationship. We look around and wonder how our heart could have led us so far from being faithful to the person we love. Or we share that secret about someone else, honestly, just because we're making conversation. There was nothing malicious about it. We didn't intend to hurt them. We just thought it was interesting, so we shared it. No one sets out to be a mustache-twirling villain. We live our lives trying to take care of ourselves and our families doing the best we can, which is all Paul was doing. While we may not be hunting down our enemies to throw them in jail and hopefully have them killed, Paul is also doing his best to live an honest, faithful life. But then something happens. This is how conversion always works. Someone is living a life with a trajectory. They know where they're headed. They've got plans. They know who they are. They know where they want to be. And then something powerful sweeps in. It is shaking. It is overwhelming. As I was graduating seminary or preparing to last spring, I was looking for jobs in what I had trained to do. So I was applying to churches exclusively in major cities as an associate pastor of a major youth program. These cities were Chicago, Atlanta, New York. I applied to these, and and frankly, my references were spot on and my applications were pretty good and got a slew of denials. God had a different trajectory. There was no blinding light from heaven. There was a stream of rejections. And I could have pushed against it. I could have resisted what it seemed like God was saying. And I could have found a position that would work. But the Holy Spirit was guiding through a conversation between one Judy Stiles and one then Micah Thomas, the Holy Spirit was guiding. There was no blinding light from heaven, but it began to feel like there was a neon light over Scottsboro Cumberland Presbyterian Church. That was an opportunity, not a conversion. And here's a misunderstanding about conversion. This event happens to Saul. Literally, the heavens open up and Saul is struck blind and Jesus speaks out of nowhere. All right, the heavens open up and a blinding light comes down and Jesus speaks out of it. This is not a conversion. It is an opportunity. There are two other people with Saul and neither of them are converted. They heard the voice but are not converted. But Saul hears this voice speak to him. It speaks out of nowhere. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
And Saul asks who it is, and the voice replies, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And now Saul has an opportunity. He hasn't been converted, but he has encountered God. Conversion depends on our response. Because you have to remember that Saul's life already has a trajectory. He is a persecutor of Christians. He is a faithful Jew. He has friends who expect him to believe and behave in certain ways. He has a boss that is expecting him to bring back Christians in chains. Saul has a life, and it has a direction. And the easiest thing for him to do in that moment is to continue his life in the same trajectory. Because changing your life is hard. To be converted doesn't mean to undergo an emotional experience, which is part of why people have so many issues with altar calls. You can feel the emotion building and building, and the pressure builds and the song plays again and again until people come forward to the altar and they pray the prayer. I worked at a camp and we would do a weekly altar call, and as I talked with some of the students, they felt disillusioned with it because their friends would give their life to Christ every year, and then they would go home and change their minds. And then they would come back to camp and do it again. Which makes you wonder if they were ever converted. Many of us have encountered God. That's the part of altar calls that are good. They are a venue to encounter God, and just as important to declare publicly that you have, that God matters in my life. And maybe we have an altar call or a moment we would point to or a person. We point there and say that we encountered God. But that encounter of God is not a conversion. Because conversion means physical change. From dollars to quetzales. It's no longer the same thing. It looks different. It is backed by a different government. I cannot spend my quetzales here, and I have tried, because the dollar has been converted. And our conversion is not having an experience of God. It is a result of having that experience, but conversion is the change. When Paul is converted, it's not that he continues on the same trajectory, but now God is tagging along. Instead, who Saul was is interrupted. The trajectory of his life has come to a crossroads. He has this experience of God, and he decides to change directions. Saul, who was a successful Jew, a persecutor of Christians, decides to set aside his certainty and see what God has in store. But look at this. He will still use the same scriptures. He'll still be a tent maker. That's still how he makes his money, but he has changed. And so has his behavior. This thing happened. Paul encountered God, and Paul decides he has to respond. So he does something radical. He hands his identity over to God. Almost all of the letters we have from Paul to a church or a friend begin the same way. I, Paul, a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul's identity was one thing. Now his identity is about following Jesus. It's not that Paul finally figured out who he really is. What happened here is Paul let God step in and change who he is becoming. Paul, left to his own devices, was a killer of Christians and a denier of Jesus Christ. But because he has been converted, Paul will begin looking more like Jesus. This is not an easy process. 
We heard Paul reflect on it in his letter to the Romans that Dust read, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He wants to be changed. He knows how he wants to live, but he doesn't always do it. Conversion is not simply a moment, but a beginning of a lifelong process. When we convert, we begin handing over every aspect, every aspect of our lives to God to be converted. It is handing to God even the parts of ourselves that we like, that we are proud of, to see what God will do with them. And the reason this language is so intense is because, if it's not, our life's trajectory and our society will carry us in the direction we were headed. And because the sinful desires in us haven't changed, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I cannot will what is right. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. What Paul wants is less Paul, less of the one who is killing Christians and more of the one who is raising the dead. Now, I know and you know that conversion is a word that can be used poorly, but it is a really important word in the Christian tradition. Conversion is used to describe our response to encountering God because who God is and what God has done and what God is offering us is so large and so important that we are not the same after encountering it. And at times this question will be asked in terms of salvation. Someone will say, have you been saved? But this can miss the point. If you look at the story of Paul's conversion, the word conversion or convert is never used. Did anyone notice that? Partially because there isn't really a good word for it in the Bible. There are a few words that translate as convert. One is newly planted. The implication is that you have been uprooted from one way of life and planted in a new one. You are still the same. The plant is the same but it is growing differently because it is planted somewhere else. The other word is a newcomer or an outsider. You are from over there, but now you are here. It's the same word used for immigrants because you are of the world's, but now you live in God's kingdom. And here's my point. A man is out searching through the woods. He's a treasure hunter. I've heard some people do this around here. He's out there with his metal detector, and he's always digging up historical artifacts, old watches and arrowheads and uh, campsites, and he digs the stuff up, and either he donates it or he sells it or he keeps it in his house. And then one day, he finds a chest of gold, and he digs it up, and it's solid wood with beautiful metal designs. It's padlocked, so he breaks the lock off and opens it, and it's full of gold, literally full of gold. And the man starts dancing and laughing and whooping for joy because he found a chest full of gold. And he grabs the chest and starts dragging it to his truck, but it's heavy. And he starts to sweat, pulling it out of the ground, and he pulls a muscle in his back. And then he decides it's too heavy, so he leaves it there and will come back for it another day. He has this life-changing opportunity. Literally finds buried treasure, but leaves it in the ground because it's too much work to get it out. If anyone did this, anyone, we would call him crazy. We'd say, why didn't you call me? I would have come and helped you. Or we would say, I don't care if you popped your leg off. That was buried treasure. You need to get that out. 
We say God is more valuable than buried treasure. We say he has the truth and the keys to salvation. But if we encounter God, isn't it considered okay to say, Oh man, it will be really hard work to change my life. I'll have to remember to change that stuff when I have time. Isn't that considered okay? Conversion isn't finding buried treasure. It's finding the treasure and it's bringing it home. You don't control when these moments happen. Paul was walking on the road ready to arrest some Christians. You may just be on your way to buy groceries. But when that moment comes, don't decide you're too busy. That moment is pure gold. And it's worth the effort. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we encounter you in our lives, and the easiest thing to do is to feel inspired for a moment and go on living the way we were. We ask that you would give us courage to not only encounter you, but to follow where you lead. Convert our hearts again today, that we might look and act more like your Son, our Lord. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.